Good evening, everyone. I'm pleased to welcome you to this special Latrobe Asia in Conversation event titled Protest, Dissent and the Struggle for Justice in India. My name is Gerald Roach, and I'm a senior research fellow in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy here at Latrobe University. And I'm going to be introducing and closing the event this evening, but you mostly will not be hearing from me. Um, I would like to start the event by acknowledging that here in Melbourne at Latrobe University's Bandura campus, we are meeting on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Um, I want to pay my respects to the elders of the Wurundjeri people, past and present, uh, and pay my respects for the work that they've done in maintaining and caring for this country that we live on today. Um, for those of you joining from around Australia, I also want to acknowledge the many Indigenous countries in which we all live and work, pay my respect to the elders, um, past and present, wherever you are. So part of our role here at Latrobe Asia is to engage the public in discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. And to that end, I'm very excited to welcome two experts on contemporary India this evening to help us better understand recent developments in that country. So first of all, I'd like to welcome Nandini Sunda, uh, who is Professor of Sociology at the Delhi School of Economics, Delhi University. Welcome, Professor Sunda. Thank you. And this afternoon, we're also joined by, uh, we're also joined by Ian Wolford, who is our um, uh, professor of uh, lecturer in Hindi studies at La Trobe University. Welcome, Ian. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Gerald. Um, just as some background to what we're going to uh, talk about this evening, I'll just give a brief introduction and then hand the reins over to Ian for the rest of the conversation. So um, as background, I'll just briefly mention that earlier this year, the NGO uh, Civicus Monitor, which monitors human rights in the space for civil society around the world, added India to its watch list of countries of concern. In doing so, they cited an ongoing crackdown in India on NGOs and the harassment and arrest of journalists, academics, and activists. Civicus Monitor currently classifies India as repressed, along with countries like Russia and Afghanistan, and just one rank above closed countries like China and Saudi Arabia. And so in today's conversation, we're going to hear more about uh, how we got to this situation and how it is impacting people on the ground in India. Uh, I will hand it over to Ian to start the conversation. The plan is that we'll have about 30 minutes of conversation between uh, Ian and Nandini, and then we'll um, open to the comments. If you have questions as we go, put them in the, uh, the chat, and then Ian will bring, be bringing those questions up um, in the second half of the conversation. And then we'll be finishing up just before six o'clock. So uh, thanks very much and over to you, Ian. Thank you very much, Gerald. And thank you for, um, well, acknowledging that we're, you and I both are speaking from the lens of the Wurundjeri people and that those lands haven't been, uh, have never been ceded. Um, and uh, Nandini, welcome. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. How are you doing? Good, thanks for inviting me and Jay Johar, uh, which is the indigenous uh, term of greeting here. Um, and I'm looking forward to this. Thank you so much. Um, Nandini, your scholarship, um, well, it covers some of today's most pressing issues. You have uh, several decades now of, of scholarship published on the history 
and uh, and contemporary struggles in Bastyr. Um, your book, The, the Burning Forest, uh, in which you document what you call India's ongoing war in Bastyr is uh, it's essential reading uh, for individuals concerned with human rights and the state of democracy. And it's a, it's a difficult but really essential read uh, as is much of your writing on threats to human rights more broadly and you've done uh, important work that shows how attacks on universities and attempts to limit academic freedom um, are linked to these uh, perhaps uh, more widely known other issues that you work on. So I thought maybe we could begin though with universities and academics. You, you recently co-authored uh, a widely read report uh, on academic freedom in India in which you document uh, what looks like a really rapidly shrinking space for academic freedom in India. And you've written elsewhere about the transformation of the education landscape, um, well, under Modi's rule, right, since, since 2014. And you do focus on Modi's relationship and lifelong um, allegiance to the RSS and the resulting implications for, the, the, for education uh, in, in India. Um, I mean, it really does seem that there's a war being waged on Indian public universities and your field of anthropology and other fields in the social sciences and humanities um, seem especially to be targeted. So why is education so important to this RSS project? Why are India's universities targeted so heavily? And why does it seem that sociologists or academics in history, language and related fields are the ones that are most frequently mischaracterized? demonized um, and subjected to state surveillance or, or worse? Um, thanks, Ian. That's a really good question to start with, because um, there are two, I think there are two reasons why universities have been targeted um, in the way that they have, which is by, uh, you know, direct physical attacks on universities. Uh, we've had uh, you know, the infamous incident in JNU where you had in um, January uh, 2016, uh, there was this sort of uh, arrest of some of the students who were protesting. Uh, you know, they were talking about capital punishment and the need to fight against that. And there was a whole series of attacks after that. Then in 21, or was it 20, uh, JNU was physically attacked by masked armed attackers who went around and, you know, vandalized hostels. In Ramjas College in 2017, we had another attack on a seminar that was taking place. So there've been physical attacks, there've been arrests of students, uh, many of whom were participating in the protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act, which discriminates against Muslims. Uh, there've been uh, seminars which have been shut down, uh, books have been censored, taken off the syllabus. So there've been a whole series of attacks on universities. Now, why you ask why that hap that's happening, right? Uh, so one reason is because students were at the forefront of protest against uh, the Modi government in the first term. So the first protest actually started from the Film and Television Institute uh, where they were, protesting against an unqualified director um, who was chosen on purely ideological grounds. And uh, there were protests in JNU, in Banaras Hindu University, where uh, women students were protesting against um, unreasonable hostel uh, restrictions, as well as men being allowed non-vegetarian food and women being forced to be vegetarian. Uh, so, you know, and there've been, you know, um, 
protests in Osmana University in IIT Madras against, uh, you know, again, food restrictions on students. Uh, so one is to sort of shut down dissent in the university because that's obviously seen as a threat. The other reason is because of the RSS, um, the Rashtra Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is the mother organization of the BJP government, which has had a long project of uh, rewriting narratives about India's history and society. So uh, the ways in which uh, the universities are being changed is not just through sort of physical attacks and closures, but through appointments. So all the vice chancellors or directors of institutes or of autonomous research bodies, you know, the Indian Council of Social Science Research, ICHR, historical research, philosophical research, all the funding bodies, the UGC, uh, all of them have been, um, uh, are now being uh, headed by people with close ideological links to the RSS. Uh, so that also translates into appointments down the line. So people who are seen as pliant and amenable to the ruling ideology are being selected and other people are not being given jobs. Uh, so one is to sort of capture the institution because the universities are still a major source of legitimacy in the wider hierarchy um, of you know, professional legitimacy. And so the first reason was to stop dissent. The second is to capture institutions. Also, you know, it's an important source of patronage, uh, this whole um, business of recruiting. And, uh, and the third reason is to change the narrative about Indian history. So to argue that uh, the RSS was the main nationalist body involved in India's freedom, that the real freedom would be, you know, freedom from eight, what they call 800 years of foreign quote unquote rule, and uh, to portray Hindu society as harmonious tolerance, uh, closing down, papering over all questions about caste, inequality, um, atrocities, etc. So these, I think, are the three reasons why um, universities have been such a major source of, you know, have been a problem for the RSS and have been attacked. Thank you very much. And I, that also, you definitely addressed that part of my question, just wondering why is history, why is history being attacked? Why is sociology being attacked? So thank you for that. I'm just going to break from the, the format that, that we promised and maybe actually turn to one of the questions in the Q&A now, um, just because I think a lot of people will be thinking it. It's uh, Jay Kondinia asked, how is it exactly that the CAA distributes um, against Muslims? I know this is a question that um, that uh, quite a few people have, and I, I see quite a bit of discussion about this. So maybe you'd like to address that now? Yeah, the CA is discriminatory because for the first time, it makes religion the basis of citizenship. Uh, so if the aim was to protect uh, or to provide refuge for discriminated minorities in neighboring countries, uh, then, you know, Shias in um, or Ahmadis in Pakistan, Hazaras in Afghanistan, uh, the Rohingyas from Myanmar would all have been um, included, but the law specifically says, or the act specifically says that it will be applicable only to uh, Christians, Muslim, I mean, Christians, uh, Hindus, Sikhs and Buddhists, et cetera, from these other countries, right? So the purpose of actually um, providing citizenship has not been, to persecuted minorities is not met. And the only reason why those persecuted minorities are being discriminated against is that they're Muslims. Uh, 
Secondly, uh, and also there are many cases now where Hindus from Pakistan have not, you know, despite um, the promise of the Citizenship Amendment Act, the rules have not been notified. So they've actually, some of them have gone back to Pakistan because uh, they were not, uh, you know, and there were also, there are also other ways of giving persecuted minorities uh, citizenship or, you know, they could have just been naturalized without having an act like this. The second way in which it's discriminatory against Muslims is because um, it was coupled with uh, the National Register of Citizens or the promise to have a National Register of Citizens. And we already have the example of Assam where uh, many people who are citizens have been uh, cast as doubtful citizens there as uh, there are you know huge detention centers uh, being set and, and that have been set up and more are being set up across assam so the citizenship rights of existing uh, muslim citizens is being taken away in places like assam and you know the danger was that this would happen across the country so given that muslims have been so discriminated against in recent years if you take even if you take away even the citizenship aspect of it, that's the most fundamental constitutional right that people have. And I think that's why all of us, uh, not just Muslims, uh, felt so outraged about the Citizenship Amendment Act because you also needed to you know, produce papers. Uh, so Dalits, Adivasis, all sorts of people wouldn't have the papers to show that they'd been living in the places that they've been living in for centuries, for generations. Thank you for answering that very complicated question and breaking it down into those parts uh, about both the constitutional issue and then also how it, uh, Dalits and Adivasis might be disproportionately affected by this and how when the CAA, when, when I, as you explained, taken in conjunction with the NRC and these de detention centers um, being built uh, does seem to be fundamentally discriminatory, if I understood your, your response correctly. Um, since you mentioned... Um, uh, arrests and, and of academics. I wonder if I could ask you about the Bhima Korigan case. Um, none of this case is very much on my mind today because it is the uh, two-year anniversary of the arrest of Haini Babu. He's one of several activist lawyers and academics who was arrested in connection with this case. He's a professor of English at, at Delhi University. Um, and his research addresses fundamental issues of language rights as human rights. And I know um, Gerald and I have both been terribly worried about him. He's our colleague. He's one of your colleagues. Um, I, I won't speak for Gerald, but definitely I, I do understand his and related arrests to be um, unjust and examples of, of use of arrests and incarceration as arrests as forms of punishment. Are you able to speak about some of the basic features of this case and how it is that these particular set of of uh, lawyers, activists, academics got targeted. And, and further, just something I'm worried about now, I, it's not clear to me what's happening in these cases. How do we find out how these people are doing now? Um, thanks, Ian. I mean, I'm so glad you brought up that this is the second anniversary of Hani Babu's incarceration. And some of the Bhima Karagaon people have been now in jail for four years. The trial hasn't even begun. And, uh, Last year on July 5th, Stan Swami died. Uh, he was a Jesuit priest who had been working in Charkand all his life, I mean, a large part of his life. And um, 
he had Parkinson's, he was denied a sipper in jail, he was denied basic medical treatment, even though he had COVID and he passed away. So uh, the Jesuits are now engaged in clearing his name because it, you know, even though he's died, uh, the imprisonment was just so unjust. Uh, so all of them, the 16 Bhima Koregaon people, um, many of them are over 70. Um, uh, Gautam Navlakha, for instance, is not being, I'm just starting with your last question of how they are now. Uh, so he is in court right now fighting for the right to have a mosquito net. Uh, so we're talking, you know, he's not being allowed phone calls. Uh, there are, or at one point he was arguing for the right to have phone calls. Uh, because it was decided that they would not be given the same privileges that every privilege, every prisoner is allowed to have. Um, in terms of um, the case itself, uh, so in uh, January 2018, uh, there was an incident at Bhima Koregaon, which is uh, something that has been celebrated for many years, starting with uh, Ambedkar and even earlier, uh, where um, a Maratha, where a regiment, uh, a British regiment with uh, Mahars uh, defeated the Maratha, the Peshwa army. And this has been celebrated as, you know, uh, Dalit pride for many years. Um, so it was attacked by um, right-wing uh, people at, you know, Sambhaji Bide and uh, others. And instead of actually looking at the people who attacked uh, the the event, uh, the Dalits were then criminalized and there were cases against them. So, but that's one issue. The name Bhima Koregaon comes from there, but the case against these 16 people is not related to that. Using that as an excuse and claiming that the Maoists were behind that violence, which it wasn't two-sided violence, violence. It was, you know, an attack on an existing commemoration. Um, they widened it out into a case of Maoist conspiracy to uh, kill Narendra Modi. Uh, now, there is no, that whole uh, angle of a threat to the prime minister has been dropped and it's just become a widening uh, investigation into anyone who's seen as connected to uh, Maoists in any way. Uh, a recent article in the Wired magazine showed that so it started with the arrest of Rona Wilson. Um, and a recent article in the Wired magazine has shown that, I mean, there were earlier uh, reports by Arsenal and by Citizenship, a Citizens Lab in Toronto. Arsenal is a investigative uh, body in Boston, which looks at how this, uh, you know, uh, the kind of planting that takes place. Uh, but it showed that uh, Rona's, computer had been infected with files which had been planted you know over two years before he was arrested uh, and he actually had no knowledge of that of those files at all right so uh, this recent wired article shows that in fact the planting was done by a P pune police officer because the recovery email for uh, that was linked to this pune police officer so not only I mean, have they been planting evidence on, on Stan's computer as well? He said he'd never seen those files. So this whole widening net of um, a conspiracy is based on planted evidence. It's based on arresting people who have been vocal in their own fields. So once you 
arrest lawyers like Sudha Bhardwaj, who has spent her entire life working as a trade unionist and a lawyer fighting for the rights of Adivasis, then you're effectively disempowering not just Sudha, but all the people that she represented. Similarly, with Gadling and with Arun Ferreira, Vernon Gonzalez, these were lawyers who were fighting for workers, for peasants. Uh, so that's a way of actually silencing some of the most articulate um, people who have spent their entire lives working for uh, people who had nobody else to represent them. Um, you know, Gautam Navlakha has been a human rights activist, a civil liberties uh, activist, and a journalist for decades fighting for peace between India and Pakistan. I mean, all of them, if you look at each one of them, Anand El Tumde, who is one of our most notable uh, thinkers, um, writing on caste, writing on political theory. Um, again, it's inconceivable that, and he actually wrote against the Bhima Koregao commemoration. So, you know, to link him in a case where the Maoists are accused of being behind Bhima Koregao is just ridiculous. It, Nandini, it seems like there were, you've referenced so many of them, uh, but so many cases uh, that we're seeing now where people, be they journalists, academics, um, activists, who have um, either sounded the alarm about crimes against minority or um, individuals or oppressed communities or just shown light on those situations. And then, but rather than address these crimes or injustices, um, punishment has been dealt out to the activists or the journalists who brought those injustices to to light. Um, again, breaking from what we said we we're going to do, but I noticed that Deepak Joshi in the, uh, has asked a question in the Q&A about um, uh, uh, Himanshu Kumar, the activist who just um, just last week or just a few weeks ago was was this the Supreme Court imposed uh, a five lakh um, fine on him uh, because he asked for an independent probe into um, crimes that were alleged against the Adiwasi community in um, by Chhattisgarh police in the area that you know uh, so well. Um, I we can think that multiple international organizations and and then people within India have criticized um, the Delhi police for the handling of the 2020 violence because it seems to follow that pattern of going after victims rather than perpetrators. Um, we keep going. I mean, the Gujarat police uh, arrested um, just uh, what last month, uh, activist and Padma Shri recipient, Tisa Setalwar, known for her work um, in support of victims of the 2002 Gujarat violence. Uh, and then anyone who's following Indian news now will know um, that uh, about Mohammed Zuer's uh, arrest for four-year-old tweet, right, of a silly line from a Hindi film. Um, but we all know, we all know he was targeted not because of a silly tweet from a Hindi film. He was targeted because of his journalism work critical of, of the current government. So you've written um, recently that the um these actions by the government the courts the police they're they're working together to signal that what you've said uh is is to signal that india is in an undeclared emergency where dissent is criminalized uh and where that process of arrest and investigation is the punishment is that then what links all these is it correct to link all these cases together with that and are there any what are the other features of this um undeclared emergency um, thank you, Ian. Actually, it's not just me who's calling it uh, an undeclared emergency. It's uh, you know widely accepted among 
a large uh, swath of people that uh, we're seeing something quite unprecedented. In fact, the Chief Justice himself um, recently talked about the need for uh, you know bail to be the rule rather than arrest uh, for uh, to not have sort of trials on uh, the TV media. Uh, there's been a whole kind of sense that people are being arrested all the time, either for, you know, tweets. There was a tweet against uh, somebody in 2021 at the height of the second wave of the pandemic um, in India. Uh, somebody in UP was arrested for tweeting that uh, he needed oxygen for his uh, father. Uh, there was, you know, there've been, people have been tweeted for, uh, arrested recently. There was a, um, sanitation worker who was uh, arrested because somebody had dumped photos of Modi and Yogi in his sanitation cart, you know, or somebody else, a Muslim who was uh, selling pakodas or something, and the newspaper had a photo of the prime minister. So, you know, anything goes, right? So people are being arrested for tweeting, for uh, things for which they are simply not responsible, um, and in any case, don't constitute crimes. Uh, but I'm so glad that you raised this question of how uh, the arrests of Tista, Satilvad, Zubair. Um, oh, well, let me just take Tista and uh, Himanshu because that marks a new kind of development in um, Indian jurisprudence where not only do you not provide uh, relief to the petitioners in a PIL, but you actually... Um, <sighs> you know, go on to argue that they should be arrested uh, because uh, they have used up judicial time. So in the Zakia Jafri case, where Zakia Jafri's husband had been hacked and burnt in 2002, she was accused of having the gumption to keep, gumption, quote unquote, to keep the pot boiling, quote unquote, for 16 years, uh, by pursuing her case in the Supreme Court. And if you actually break down the Supreme, those 16 years, as I've done in an article recently, um, at least 12 to 14 of those years were because of court delays. So it's not as if, you know, people want to be spending 16 years of their lives fighting for justice. Uh, and if you look at the Supreme Court judgment itself in the Tista Settlebad case, um, the they go entirely by what the SIT said in giving the government a clean chit. And if you look at what the SIT said, uh, they have basically relied on police officers who have given themselves a clean chit. So they say, we asked the police officers and they said, uh, we didn't do it. We weren't responsible. And so fine, let's believe that. And that was it. And exactly the same pattern has been followed in the Gompar case where uh, in the... You know, this was an incident that happened in 2009 um, as part of Operation Green Hunt, where uh, in September, on September 17th, um, the security forces went on an operation and they admit that they went on that operation, both in Gompad and Gwachinpali, the two villages that are the case of this petition. And... Um, Nine people were killed in Gompad, seven people were killed in Gachanpali, or I mean, five people in Gachanpali, of which one was an old woman. There was a child in Gompad whose entire family was killed. His eight-year-old aunt managed to rescue him and run away into the jungle. And this child had two of his fingers chopped off. That child is alive today, right? So 
it's not as if that incident didn't happen. It was widely reported at that time that security forces had done it. Again, in this judgment, the court has relied entirely on the police saying, we didn't do it. Um, how can you say that we did it? And therefore, you know, the charges uh, should they should the petitioners should be charged with perjury and fighting false complaints. So, you know, both judgments are relying entirely on the police who have basically said we didn't do it and then criminalizing the petitioners. So this is really a new law in um, jurisprudence. And I think everybody uh, is really shocked by these developments. I, yes, I'm quite shaken up just hearing you um, recount all this, even though I, I'm familiar with these um, the, these events, but but it's quite difficult to listen to. Do you, when when you've written about the situation of, of these threats to academic freedom in in India, um, you've you've also placed it in in a in a global context. Um, do you? <laughs> Do you see this as a global issue, these, these threats to academic freedom? And obviously, I'm you talking about these kinds of, of issues with police. This is not just an issue um, unique to, to India. How does this fit into um, this global situation? Yeah, I mean, as you say, threats to academic freedom are an increasingly um, important global issue. And um, last year, the UN... Um, Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression had a section had a report on academic freedom, which is what uh, we were writing for initially. And uh, you know, we know Turkey, for instance, has had uh, you know large numbers of academics being arrested or suspended from their jobs. Uh, the number of attacks on um, higher education institutions has gone up. So I, from the, I correct me if I'm wrong, but. I was reading a couple of reports on Australia um, and the worry there was not, was sort of cancel culture from, um, you know, groups, um, sort of more radical groups on campus. But uh, here the attack is entirely mostly from the right-wing student body. I mean, all the physical attacks that have happened on campuses. So I think, although the context is very different across the world, uh, you know, there is a growing sense of, I mean, US campuses, again, have been um, the site of major discussions about whether you have the freedom to uh, be racist and uh, uh, homophobic and all sorts of things on um, university campuses. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Nandini, you've written, and I'm definitely thinking about this as I hear you speak now, but you've, you've written in the past on um, that academics who are interested in social engagement, um, which I definitely, <laughs> you're, you're in that camp, uh, face a unique set of challenges. Uh, and, and many of those have been, I think, apparent in your comments so far. Could, could I ask you to speak a bit more on the responsibilities of academics um, who in the spaces uh, who, who work in the spaces that you work and on potential relationships between academia and activism? Well, you know, I think as citizens in a democracy which is slowly dying or not so slowly dying, um, it's not just academics, but everybody has a responsibility. Um, 
to do something about this. And if you look at the German historian debates about how much did Germans actually know at that time about what was going on, um, I don't think that excuse is really available to anybody today. Uh, I mean, those who don't want to know um, or don't want to believe, and there is such, you know, the social media scene and the media scene in general is so sharply polarized that uh, people who only watch certain television channels live in an alternative universe. So I understand that, that there is a serious problem of disinformation uh, through a variety of tools. But uh, there is, um, so I think as citizens, we all have a responsibility to talk across uh, communities to try and figure out for ourselves why this polarization is happening, what one can do about it. Uh, but as academics, I think uh, it's important just to keep the academic space going, right? That itself is a sphere of activism because when you have such closure of the universities, uh, when, um, and it's not just attacks, but if you look at the whole way that the university um, is being subject to uh, cuts for, uh, you know, in scholarships for students or permanent jobs are going down. Um, these are all ways of keeping academics in check, right? So there's that whole struggle to be fought uh, to just maintain academic standards wherever you are, because it's important to the young. I mean, uh, lots of people I know sort of just want to leave their jobs. and uh, But for the young people, there is, I mean, they are really interested in doing research and it's, so that itself is an important space um, that people should continue to work in. And as for wider engagement, um, you know, I really wish one didn't have to keep choosing. It's there's a paucity of time, and there's just so many things to do research on, and yet it's hard when every day people are getting arrested, and you know, this just that mental space is difficult. Uh, yes, I, I, it, it must be, and uh, it, it must be very difficult to, to work under these kind of, of conditions, I, I can't imagine. Um, could I ask you a slightly different question? Um, just, it's coming from my own interest as someone who works on, on language, uh, on Hindi language is what I work on. Um, I, I would be interested in some you've written about as well, uh, but just hear you discuss more your thoughts on the place of in English, Hindi, uh, and vernacular languages in both in academic spaces and um, in India as a whole, and also how that relates to, to so many of the issues we've talked about so far today. I will actually, I'd love you to talk more about this, Ian, because uh, <laughs> we work on these issues. I don't really work at all on, uh, you know, the sort of spread of vernacular uh, publishing or what's happening in different uh, areas. But one thing I do want to note is that the intellectual scene is very different in different states. So publishing in the vernacular, uh, publishing academic texts is very strong in Kerala, in uh, Bengal. Um, Maharashtra also has a tradition of little journals which publish serious literature. Uh, whereas uh, in Hindi, as far as I know, but I may be wrong, you don't have so much academic um, work coming out uh, as much as in, in the other states. And just to give an example with The Burning Forest, the first translation I had was in Tamil and it came out you know, immediately uh, within a year. 
uh, Hindi, after all these years, I'm still struggling to get a publication. So I've had it come out in Telugu, in Tamil, uh, Bengali expressed interest. So, I mean, you know, it shows you the strength of the reading public in these different um, regions. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Nandini, I mentioned to you um, just when we, we said uh, hello uh, before we started that I've, I've been revisiting your 1997 book on the anthropological history of, of Bastar. Uh, and this really is a region where you've been working for several um, decades now. Um, I was really struck by your your final um, your, your final chapter called "Uncertain Futures." Uh, and I don't know if you can remember everything you were wondering about now. What would happen uh, in in that uncertain future? Um, it, it was quite sad to to read, especially when I just think of the 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 space between the publication of this book and and the burning forest that you just mentioned. And I was I was wondering if in the late '90s you could have predicted the what you describe as kind of a, a state managed plunder and, and destruction of of indigenous population, uh, the indigenous population in in Buster that you you document in, in such a harrowing uh, but powerful way in 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 that in the burning forest published a decade later. And in that book, you wrote that you felt it necessary. You said that the truth must go on record. You start out saying that even if justice might not be met. Um, you know, what would, what, how, how would you rewrite that, that uncertain futures chapter now if you'd known where things were headed? Um, why is it important for the truth to be documented? Um, and what might what might justice, what, do, what would it look like? What would it look like for the community and people that you've worked with? Well, I, what justice would look like for them, they're very clear, they want prosecution of some of the, at least, you know, people who've been involved in all these killings and um, uh, they don't just want compensation. Um, so in the Tadmitla case where uh, the CBI actually charge sheeted some uh, security people, uh, some SPOs and others being involved in arson. Um, the villagers said clearly that we want people to be prosecuted. We not interested. I mean, they got neither justice, they got neither compensation nor prosecution, um, but they're very clear about what they want. There've been other inquiries which have again held that innocent villagers were killed. Um, again, people there are saying we want prosecution. We want some justice. It's not just that, you know, our houses get burnt and people get killed and women get raped and nothing happens to those who did it. Um, there's a wonderful movement going on right now um, for the last year. I mean, everybody's heard about the farmer um, protests lasting for a year, but this is a youth-led movement in Silgare uh, where they've been protesting against a security camp that came up overnight. And this has spread, in fact, across Bastar where people are protesting, demanding justice. Um, and this is led by, you know, young people who, at, when the Salvajadum started in 2005, they fled into the forest with their parents and they're saying, now we are going to, we, they've gone to school, they want to stay there and fight, right? So I think, uh, the future is uncertain. I mean, I, there's lots of things I would rewrite about all my books if I could, because I think there are problems with them. But uh, I have hoped that these young people will be able to, you know, are struggling and will be able to imagine a different kind of future. Um, and what justice would mean would be all the camps winding up, education, health, prosecution of those who were involved, 
uh, we know what justice looks like and we know what people are not getting right now. Um, and the truth has to be told because you have judgments like the Gompa judgment, which claims that, you know, nothing really happened and the Naxalites did it, unknown Naxalites, when everybody knew that it was the security forces which had attacked. So um, the truth has to be told somewhere. Thank you. Thank you very much um, for answering that question. Um, one question that I know um, Gerald discussed with me earlier, because um, we we're expecting um, you know, an audience from the general public in Australia, also New Zealand, and in academia, is that you, you've discussed a lot of different issues here, um, this question of, of um, threats to human rights uh, links them all. What, what can people do from here in Australia, uh, where I'm based, if they're concerned uh, about the situation or these situations that you're describing? Um, I think because the diaspora is so connected uh, to um, what's happening in India and there is a lot of polarization among the diaspora to sort of spread awareness is one thing among the general public, uh, among the general diaspora public, but also and also among the wider Australian public, which must be concerned about what's happening in India, because it's, as you pointed out, as Gerald pointed out at the beginning, um, India is a country of concern on several indices. So all the freedom of expression, uh, press freedom, academic freedom, but also things like the hunger index. I mean, India has fallen uh, behind, it's now 107 out of 121 on the hunger index. So in terms of governance, uh, as well, we are behind on several indicators. And one thing that really bothers me, I mean, this is just for the first time in over 100 years, we have not had a, a decennial census. So the 21 census was missed and we're not sure when it's going to happen. So, I mean, just something as basic, as simple as a decadal census is um, not happening. And one doesn't know why. And, you know, the reasons are just not convincing. So. I think one is to do research because it's really, I mean, Australian academics have done very, really, really excellent research on India. So that of course should continue. Um, if of course people are allowed to come in because we've had two cases of people being deported without any reason from Indian airports. So um, Filippo Osella, who's an anthropologist and recently a British architect, Lindsay Bremner was also deported. Um, so that's, one thing, I mean, two, three things that people, it would be good if we could engage more on this. Thank you. Of course. Um, this ties in with the question that um, Deepika Adihari has uh, in the Q&A, which is how the kind of um, vocalization for justice uh, that uh, you're doing to, uh, here, how does it impact um, research or uh, getting grants and funding from, from the university and other uh, grant sources? I think that's a very uh, important uh, uh, question for you. So um, I think, you know, a lot of people when applying for grants from any government body are writing what they want to do. Uh, either they kind of doing it euphemistically or presenting anodyne proposals. So there's a lot of self-censoring self -censoring going on um, in grant applications. Uh, the other problem is that, for instance, some of the scientists have been um, complaining about uh, priorities in research funding. So 
uh, I've forgotten what the sort of name of the project is, but there's a project being funded by the Department of Science and Technology on uh, the benefits of cow urine and et cetera. And a lot of money is going into that as against uh, money that could be going into other scientific projects. Uh, so we haven't even touched on the sciences here, but there are lots of problems in those fields as well. Uh, it's not just the rewriting of history, but actual um, rewriting of every field in a sense. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely a problem. Also, the sources of funding. I mean, DU keeps, um, we haven't had any summer vacations or any vacations in DU for the last three years because they haven't got the academic calendar in sync. So it's not just like <laughs> applying for funding, but just like having research leave to do anything. Thank you. Yeah. Um, a question from Malcolm McKinnon in the Q&A uh, referring back to, um, uh, perhaps it's referring to, I think, what the, the court just said about um, Zubair's uh, arrest, perhaps. can Could you comment on the role of the Supreme Court? Because occasionally the court or specific justices seem to chastise that on the ground uh, law enforcement uh, activity um, that you've been describing. Are these actions or statements no more than just flash in the pan? You know, how, what what do we make of it when when individual judges make these kinds of statements? Uh, so yes, I mean they are no more than flashes in pan, and not and there's a quite a diversity among the judges. So. Um, you know, the Chief Justice ex exercises an important role in assignment of um, cases to particular benches. So it's quite interesting that four of the Supreme Court judges, uh, including Justice Gogoi, who um, presided over, or I don't know if he presided over, but he was a member of a bench which heard a charge of sexual harassment against him. So he was, you know, judging on his own innocence. Um, he was part of a group of four judges who protested against um, certain cases which were going to favor the government being assigned to a particular judge at that time, Justice Mishra, who is now the chairperson of the NHRC. So that is a certain problem in the way the Supreme Court functions. Uh, the second is that while there have been some cases where uh, the freedom of journalists have been protected. So Arnab Goswami was somebody who, you know, one of the first cases that Justice Chandrachud uh, made similar comments on the need to protect uh, press freedom. Um, but the same yardstick has not been applied to Siddiq Kappan, who didn't even reach the site where he was about to report on a Dalit uh, rape and hang, you know, uh, death, uh, and has been in jail for the last two years. So even on the question of press freedom, there is no uniformity. Um, and we see uh, an increasing trend where not only are important constitutional cases not heard, for instance, the electoral bond cases, the Jammu and Kashmir, Article 370 uh, case, uh, you know, a number of different, very, very important constitutional cases, but now they started to arrest petitioners. I mean, that's really, from not hearing to actually blaming you for approaching the court is, is quite a major step. 
Thank you. I'll try and get to as many of these questions in, in the Q&A as I can. Why don't I go ahead and take this one? It's from an anonymous person, so I can't give the name. I, I might reword it a bit, but I'll, I'll just read it when someone asks you to explain your allegiance with Maoist ideology. Could I add a follow-up to that? Why is it that academics, you know, this is a charge I get as well, this charge of urban nuptialism, it seems to be levied against them as a way to dismiss everything they're saying. What does it mean to be called an, an urban nuptial and, and why is this happening? And this is something that even um, uh, your prime minister um, himself in, in, in parliament has labeled certain academics at JNU urban nuptials. Uh, to people sort of chuckling in, in his own, his own uh, uh, people in, in the, the legislature laughed at it, but it's a very serious charge. So what does this mean? Why does this charge keep getting, getting thrown around? Uh, with the kind of charge that gets thrown along with the Khan Market Gang, the Tukde Tukde Gang, uh, the Latians Gang. So these are all ways of denigrating people who are dissenting against this government. Somebody had filed an RTI asking uh, what the category of urban Naxal meant specifically, and they got a reply saying that there was no such, you know, uh, substantive connotation to this. Uh, charge. So it is something that is just being thrown around. And, uh, you know, it's a way of labeling anybody who um, dissents. We're, thank you. Yes, we're getting quite, a, I'm trying to put them together, and we're getting quite a few comments uh, saying things like that this is all just very, um, Jay Shah has said this is very um, one-sided, um, there's this is a limited forum and we're not allowing any other opinions to be presented. Uh, Jay Kodinia also said that um, talking about the, the, the narrative, incorrect historical narratives that you're supporting of, of Islamic invaders and Ravi Bhatia has also been asking for this other side to be presented. Um, what do you say to these people who are asking you, what about the other side? What about the other side? Um, why isn't this other side uh, allowed to, to speak as it were? Well, I don't see history in terms of sides. I see history in terms of uh, evidence, dis debates about evidence, debates about method. Now, if you look at the work of Sanjay Subramaniam, who is the brother of the current uh, external affairs minister, Jay Shankar, S. Jay Shankar, um, Sanjay's work actually talks about the richness of um, the multiple movements of people into India, of the different kinds of narratives, looks at different histories. Uh, so, you know, there is no, uh, there's no question, I mean, given that India was not, I mean, had so many kingdoms, um, every kingdom was an invader into every other kingdom. And these were not just Muslim invaders, Hindu invaders, you know, there were Hindu kingdoms which were at war with each other. So this whole narrative of invaders uh, is just historically problematic in terms of the way it conceptualizes history. Um, and if you look at population movements, the first movement of Muslims uh, was as traders to the Malabar coast. Um, you know, not the first movement, but an important movement. Uh, and if you look at uh, the wonderful architecture in Hampi, where it actually has, uh, you know, sculptures of Muslim traders with their horses, etc. So we're talking about uh, diverse ways of interacting. And if you're asking me to give up... Um, you know, tandoori butter chicken and salwar kameezes or Urdu poetry. What are you talking about? I mean, who's invading whom and 
it's all part of a common historical heritage. Thank you. I'll take two questions together here. Uh, one earlier, we had, again, an anonymous question, though, saying if the judicial system and the media and academia are under uh, Hindutva onslaught, this person says, if one has an opposing view, where would they go to express it? Does support for the BJP actions, is it uh, is it present among the Hindu population broadly, or is it minority support? And I'll go ahead um, and pair that with Ravi Bhatia's question saying um, that uh, the fact that you're able to make these public statements, or assume that you were a person that uh, this anonymous attendee is asking about, you're, you're having this opposing view. So when Ravi Bhatia says you're being able to make such uh, controversial statements in public, isn't that a testament to freedoms in India? Uh, well, thank you for Ravi Bhatia or whoever for uh, thinking that I should not have this freedom as a citizen of India. I have constitutional rights um, to freedom of expression, to uh, freedom of movement, etc. So I don't see that it's up to anybody to say what rights a citizen should have or think that it's a, a favor granted by the government. I mean, these are rights that we enjoy as citizens from the constitution. And the problem is that these are being taken away from uh, people at a very rapid pace in terms of people's ability to, uh, you know, tweet, to write, to say what they want. Um, in fact, as we speak, uh, you know, MPs have been suspended from parliament because parliament has decided there should be a code of what can be said where the word corrupt can no longer be mentioned or, you know, simple words which often come up in parliamentary discussions. Um, are no longer acceptable, right? So, I mean, even parliamentarians are being gagged in terms of what they can say or what they can't say. So we're talking of a serious crisis here. And um, I don't, I mean, I'm just looking at one of the other things about that review about Hindi literature being an important part of Indian culture. Of course, I mean, Ian knows that. Ian, I mean, where is the question of that? And we're very glad that, um, uh, you know, Raj, um, that um, uh, Tomb of Sand has just been awarded the book. Of, I mean, but if you look at what, she, why don't you look at what she's actually written in the book? I mean, it's it's think, not going to be your comforting Hindutva narrative. No, but uh, it, it is wonderful that people are reading Gitanjali Shri now and, and Daisy's translation is absolutely spectacular. If you read Hindi and English, I really encourage everyone to read to read both. Uh, Nandini, I see that we're uh, up against um, the very end of our time, actually. So um, I'm, I'm going to, uh, before I hand it back over to Gerald, um, first, uh, uh, thank you so much to all the attendees here um, for uh, your questions and, and for attending. Nandini, thank you so much uh, for, for speaking so candidly um, on, on all of these topics. I feel like we've only just scratched the, the surface of a lot of these things. Perhaps you feel the same way. Um, and uh, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. And I know that we're about to get cut off. So I'll hand things back to um, Gerald for now. Thanks very much, Ian. I just want to add my uh, thanks and appreciation to uh, Nandini for bringing us all, all of that um, information uh, and, and insight that you've been able to offer. I want to thank you, Ian, also for managing the conversation. Uh, in the respectful and thoughtful way that you did. I, I think we've all learned a, a lot about the human rights situation in India. 
Um, I'll just end this evening's uh, talk uh, with uh, a little bit of information about upcoming events that Latrobe Asia is uh, sponsoring. So our next scheduled uh, talk from Latrobe Asia is an online webinar, which will be about China's ambitions in, in Antarctica and their implications for Australia. That will be coming up on the 3rd of August. That's an online event. Um, and you can uh, find that information about where to register online. Um, and you can also follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find out more details of future online events uh, to help all of us understand Asia and how it's changing uh, better. So thanks everyone for joining us this evening. Thanks once again to Ian and Nandini. It's, it's been a pleasure and I've learned a great deal. Thank you. <laughs>